All right, welcome back to yet another episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, you see the headline, you know what the title is. It's a fireside chat, so we're going to dive in. You've heard these before, and we're going to let our panelists introduce themselves and i'm just going to follow round robin on the screen so we're going to start with you rick can you introduce yourself please my name is rick partlow i write military science fiction uh, my biggest series is the drop trooper series first books contact front but i have like 14 or 15 series so something for everybody he's a former army infantry officer part of his pedigree and once he wrestled a moose that was a bear same thing <laughs> i'm a city boy it's all the same all right, Peter, can you introduce yourself? My name's Pete Nealon. I write mostly action adventure, military thriller type stuff, though I've branched out a bit into science fiction and fantasy with the Lost series for uh, Wargate Press. And I spent eight years as a reconnaissance Marine and then another eight contracting overseas. And now I teach firearms. Absolutely. Pew pews, I know the things. All right, John, Doc Spears, can you introduce yourself? Hey, I'm John Spears. I too, unfortunately, write military science fiction. And uh, <laughs> my, my background is US Army Special Forces, and then I'm director of Forge Tactical and a contractor currently for the US Army. And uh, Nick, would you like to introduce yourself? They, they haven't seen you much lately, so can you just kind of remind them who you are? Uh, Nick Garber, uh, I'm the president of Avachi Comics, creator of the Phantom Hawk, who is a former Green Beret like Doc Spears, except he was a uh, communications dude. Um, and I also write military science fiction, thanks to JR. Peer pressure is a thing, man. And and it's once a, upon a, a time, he was a spicy grunt for the U.S. Army. I was a, I was a spicy grunt. And uh, and then, as you know, I was just your basic bitch, nobody grunt. So you know, leg in the hundred first. Everybody I am, loved me. I am I am a same thing, basic bitch, nobody grunt. Twenty fifth infantry division. No, but when you're a leg in the hundred first, everybody lets you know it. So you know that that's what I attribute my thick skin to okay. because you know they're all hundred first is all legs. They're just dopes on a rope. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Once we I hit ground, we're all we're all straight leg infantry. So. I'll bow out of that one. So this conversation started, I was talking to a friend of the show, Christopher Denote, who is uh, of Air Force fame. Uh, he was going to be here, but the Air Force saw fit to send him TDY. And, you know, he couldn't say no. I don't know how that works. I, I thought Air Force, you just check in, check out. Yeah, the, the reservations at the Four Seasons that uh, yeah. they made for him, you know, were non-refundable. So he had to go. Yeah, but we were talking... Go. And we were realizing that one of our biggest complaints, because we just shoot the breeze about the topics, was how unbelievable most combat written in science fiction is. And I was talking to him. I said, you don't even have to have been to combat to realize if you've been camping, you don't stay clean very long. And somehow everything is just so sanitary and static. And that got us thinking, this could be an interesting um discussion so i brought on a panel of people who write the stuff and have done the stuff and camped in the woods and gotten dirty before and i thought we could we could have that discussion so first off 
we we obviously don't want to you know name and shame unless they're like long dead and it's a classic like you can make fun of starship troopers he doesn't care i promise but you know we, we try to keep it you know well, friendly to make fun of yeah I mean, well you can make fun of his movies it's not his movie. He had nothing yeah, to do with it. Right. <laughs> Poor R.A.H. He got, he got done dirty with that one. Though, you know, I'm all for nude shower scenes at all times. But <laughs> I, if, that, if that movie had been named Bug Hunt, I, which is, I think, with the original title, and they, had, and they hadn't had the rights to Starship Troopers, it would have been an entertaining movie. But Oh, it's still an yeah. entertaining movie. It's just no. you got to detach <laughs> the source material from the movie. No, no, I can't detach Verhoeven. He's a piece of garbage. <laughs> so I actually found Heinlein through the movie, and I was like, this sounds interesting. Are there more you know, in the world? And then I realized the controversy because Google, and, uh, and then I found his book. So uh, I can't hate the movie because it sent a lot of people into the arms of military science fiction and the good stuff. It brought stuff. you to so Jesus. That's right. It brought me to Jesus. So what is um, – when you're reading uh, action scenes in, in science fiction, it doesn't have to just be mill sci-fi. What is it you look for that makes you say, okay, this is plausible? Um, for me, the thing that make, that is the line between plausible and implausible is how detailed things are if they're from like an individual point of view, like close third or first person, if somebody is like describing to you in detail, everything that's happening around them, that's bull. I mean, you, you don't know what's happening around you. You know what's coming in. Maybe you might know somebody shooting at you. You might realize where they are, but you, you know, you, you're not like, Oh, this platoon was over to my right. And uh, I knew that Sergeant so-and-so was coming up Somebody just shot, started shooting at you. You're you're confused. You're in the dirt. There's people yelling, con, you know, contradictory things at each other, and you're just trying to find something to shoot back with. At okay, it's me. I I could see that. I, I think it depends on one the point of view because if if it's third person omniscient, you get a little bit of room to play. And I think the tech matters too, because if we're talking colonial Marines, they're basically modern Marines with spaceships because their gear was kind of low tech. Or are you talking full drop ship or drop troop armor where maybe their HUD does give them lots of information. Now, well, that's whether you focus story. on that's another story. Cause I mean, we had some on the blue force, but once it hit the fan, I don't remember paying that close attention to what other convoys were doing. So no, well, well, try not to get shot. What's that first shot? snaps past your head what other convoys are doing doesn't matter except in us insofar as they are inside or outside of your line of fire absolutely and sometimes and not even then because we had some we had some green on green incidents happen when people got a little too nervous so yeah. it happens in there too i actually made a point i think in in the the battle suit stuff that he, somebody's commenting, you know, they got all this information coming in, but you can't pay attention to all of it because it's it's like a it's like a wave washing over you, and you you try to grab onto the bits that mean something to the where you where you are and what you're doing. So I know, Doc, you, I've read your um, your stuff about the uh, spec ops in the Galaxy's Edge universe, and you did a pretty good job of blending the high tech with the low tech in a way that made it believable. So what was your balance when you're trying to do that to, to sell both? I, I, I think, uh, like, especially there, I was trying to make a 
you know, an overarching point that, uh, you know, for instance, there's always going to be some battle implement that's, you know, a solid chemically driven launched projectile. You know, when it gets down to killing, it's about reaching the vitals of what you're trying to kill. And, you know, no matter no matter what technology we eventually come up with, you know, there's still going to be a role for, you know, the basics of killing, whether, you know, it's, uh, you know, a, a sword that lets the blood or it's a vibroblade or, you know, it's a good old fashioned, you know, copper pill moving about 3000 feet per second or some kind of energy based weapon and depending upon what the mission set is um, and the environment where the mission is being carried out, there's always going to be a role for, for all of those different technologies when it comes down to the, the nitty gritty of killing, you know, that's just never going to go away. So, you know, at the time trying like I say, trying to, you know, uh, not that I don't dig like, uh, you know, I dig like force users and lightsabers and, you know, and, you know, laser guns that, you know, kill just just by, you know, uh, uh, the laser bolt blast getting anywhere near the bad guy and all of that. You know, I love reading those stories, but uh, I don't want to write those stories because like I, I can't put my heart and soul into something like that because essentially it's stupid. Well, lasers as a, lasers, oh, lasers as, a, as a battlefield weapon for, for infantry is just stupid because it's incredibly high thermal signature. It's like shining a spotlight on yourself. Yeah, you might as well just, hey, I'm here. You know? Yeah, yeah. energy-based weapons at, uh, like the, at the grunt level, there's going to have to be some kind of wild leap in technology that like we can't even even imagine, you know, if you're going to pay any sort of attention to thermodynamics and, and basic physics, you know, it just, it just, it ain't in the cards for, for guys. Why don't, who, pay, why don't we pay attention to those things? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, but even, to, even today, the, uh, the IR lasers for aiming have started to become much less prevalent just because night vision has become much more prevalent. So mm -hmm. just like tracers, they work both ways. That's right. Yeah, the the you know, I was just recently having this discussion uh you know at the at the sniper schoolhouse, you know, about getting back to uh no active emission mission profile training, you know, domestically uh IR and thermal technology is just ubiquitous. I mean, it's it's in the hand of like, you know, the good guy and the bad guy, you know, everywhere. And uh, even, you know, 10, 12 years ago, domestically, where we still had the ability to use, you know, <laughs> IR aiming lasers and floods and things like that. You know, now it's like you'll absolutely get compromised, you know, moving to the target site. Uh, because of the proliferation, you know, everybody's got a, a damn, you know, Google Nest cam that can that can see IR, you know, it's, it's just the way it is. So it's the same thing in the future to 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 just 
imagine that we're going to have some uh, per pervasive technology that lets us see everything, do everything, illuminate everything, but it's not going to have any kind of a signature to give us away. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, we already see that some now. The, the complaint is there are so many satellites out that if you follow the James Webb telescope stuff, they're complaining that now it's affecting their ability to, to look outwards because the, the way the satellites are blocking views. So, I mean, we're already seeing that now. Yeah, Imagine Webb in the future. In higher orbit? Uh, I, it might have been before the James Webb Telescope. I just remember there was an article that uh, I was reading that said one of the complaints was how the ubiquitous nature of modern like satellites, once they started doing the cube satellites that were smaller, were get interfering with the ability of astronomers to collect data. Yeah, it's from Earth-based telescopes. So I wouldn't think James Webb okay. Telescope would get any interference from those because they're all lower. It's been a week or so since I read that article. So, you know, I've, I've slept since uh, then. Yeah, out of spite, I, I aim all my lasers, you know, wherever I can <laughs> a telescope on my, like, night sky app. You know, I, I aim all my green and red lasers at it. Just it's you. It's not, you. If not, if not for Starlink, I would not be talking to you right now. <laughs> so... Oh, fair. That's fair. So do you think, Nick, that it's different when you display that information? Because you write military stuff, too, but you do it in the venue of comics, which is more image-based. Do you think portraying that looks differently when it's drawn as opposed to described with words? Oh, well, yeah, because you want to, because I'm dealing with a visual medium. You know, I, I don't leave it, I don't leave too much to the imagination, except for when I'm, like, writing, you know, um, military scenes. science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> the sex scenes are pretty hardcore. Make a marine blush. <laughs> but this time I did it with people, not farm animals. So there's a first time for everything. <laughs> I got nothing. Yeah. Anybody walking What's in here like, oh boat? my god! Yeah. <laughs> well, we put it on a navy ship. I think that's a topic for next week. <laughs> Yeah, but so yeah. so you just but leave less people scared. Um, doing with the visual medium, I have to make it as realistic as possible. So I can't have like if a guy's rushing in and clearing a room, he's got an M4. He's not going to chicken wing when he's coming in. You know, he's going to have his shoulders tucked in tight. He's going to have proper form. Um, so I got to draw that. And I it's a lot of photo reference. I could draw it off memory, but sometimes it just doesn't look right because now I got to play with camera angles. You know, so it's dynamic if I have the camera, you know, set on the floor looking up while these, you know, operators are coming in and doing the Lord's work. And, uh, you know, we're, instead of describing it via word, you know, I got to draw that. So sometimes I have to take a lot of reference photos. I got, if anybody yeah. got into my phone and looked at my pictures, they'd be like, what the hell is this guy doing? You know, Nick, it wasn't that long ago that the military taught the chicken wing. <laughs> I remember because I'm a old spicy grunt. I came in in 96. Um, I know you guys are going to be like, oh, he was just a baby. I know Doc is. But uh, yeah, that, they used to teach the chicken wing. And they used to teach and the side oh, profile. And the side profile. Oh, it was all kinds of dumb shit. You know? Well, I mean, but, at the time it wasn't dumb. It made sense. But technology changes and you have to adapt with it. So so that's a, a good I'm segue. Sure the wing is anything to do with technology. Well, <laughs> well, wars are good for a couple of things. One of them is creating new tactics and, you know, and rewriting doctrine and how you how you're supposed to do things and how you're supposed to operate. So, you know, so when you guys write, when you guys write your combat scenes to make it realistic, do you start with the technology and adjust your characters, the doctrine they use? Or do you start with the doctrine as you know it and adjust the technology accordingly? 
uh, the former. I, I think about how you would use the technology and what kind of training and doctrine would rise up around it. Because you're not going to do anything resembling modern infantry fighting if you've got nine foot tall, you know, two thousand pound battle suits. I mean, that's you ain't going to be high. You ain't going to be getting in cover with these things. You're going to be counting on mobility and armor because there ain't no cover for something that big. And I'd be also uh, throwing a lot of cast at them and some uh, indirect fire. Pepper the battlefield before I go in. I'm just mopping up. Well, the Correct. other side. The other side has a say in that too. Yeah, uh, yeah, and we, that's the thing. Seen- We've seen that you can't necessarily win a war just with Cass either. No, you that's can't. One, that's one thing that I, I can make a point of actually in those books is is uh, them talking about their close air support and how seldom they can actually count on it because the other side puts up their anti-air and they yeah, wind up NBA. they wind up finishing up their dogfights for air superiority about the time that the infantry has gotten to the objective. <laughs> so yeah. There's, there's like oh, a couple true. instances where they're where they're like, oh my god, we actually have close air support this time. Well, so close air support also is affected by the politics of the day. So, for instance, if you were in Iraq in the early war, after that um, reporter charged the uh, an army, uh, what do you call it, checkpoint, and got lit up, suddenly everyone's afraid to pull the trigger lest they end up on the news. So I remember there were times we called air support. And they sat over us for a little bit, did nothing, and then flew away and said, ah, we can't get positive identification. And that was a direct result of the politics. So I imagine you push that forward, human nature being what it is, assuming we're talking humans, you're going to see some of that too, in which case you're still going to end up with the grunts at the short end of the stick. Or assuming you're fighting humans, depending on the book. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the only good bug is a dead bug. I get it. but. But again, that depends on the government that is giving the orders. And you may have bug huggers in that government too bug huggers yeah bug huggers yeah because there's always a couple there's like nut huggers (laughs) there goes our family friendly rating between nick and rick (laughs) i think we are family friendly rating because of nick i said shit come on they do that on network tv now so so (laughs) i haven't even dropped an f-bomb yet your specialty as as a um, snake eater was being creative and thinking outside of the box tactically. So do you think that helps you when it comes to designing future conflicts? Uh, I try and follow the, the, you know, it's funny that we started out talking about troopers. Cause I think that, you know, for myself, RAH pretty much, you know, chiseled in granite, the template for about every military science fiction story that anybody has tried to tell ever since. And part of his success was like with most of his writing is that the human element was was timeless. You know, whether he was writing about the, if, if he had been writing about the Battle of Hastings up to, you know, you know, Fallujah one, you know, the human element is what dominated in everything that he wrote. So I know that, you know, all, all you guys do the same thing. You know, I read your stuff and it's, you know, uh, and, and I sense the same thing going on, you know, that we're, that the technology is the enabler of the, of the, the mission set, you know, but the human element in the, the, and and the nature of armed conflict is fairly immutable 
and and being able to tell stories and sometimes you know the technology less lets us extend capabilities or it lets smaller numbers of of fighters you know achieve greater effects as a result of technology but the basic principles are exactly the same and i think when it gets into to writing realistic science fiction you know it's you know the the novel that i download or when i used to buy paperbacks you know the stuff i'd never finish is the stuff that violated that very basic tenet you know where you know yeah maybe the guy was a good writer in some other genres but when they jumped on the military science fiction bandwagon and started to write things you know it's like they they just didn't have the experience and they didn't bother to do the research and what they tried to you know visualize uh just wasn't working out to the consumer who knows better so yeah. you know uh maybe I, I i i dare say i bet most of you guys probably track with that the same way i do yeah yeah I um for me it's always when everything is just too clean and I don't care if it's a, a spaceship which like I said we're we're chatting about uh soon for space combat I mean or or dirt side it's it's dirty it's messy it smells bodily fluids happen like when you see everything so I don't know antiseptic it's almost like eh I mean these people clearly never left their bubble or or they would know that too I think and then it makes you start looking at everything else. Now, now, Peter, I know your experience as a recon was a little different than than what I did in the army and what the others did. So, do you think that changes how you look at things? Because my understanding of recon is a lot of sneaking and peeking, and maybe not so much the other Stupid stuff. I could be wrong. We we did a lot of that, um, but particularly in about 05, battalion recon as well as force got the direct action mission too. So we did our fair bit of raids, and. Okay. The fact of the matter was in Iraq, a lot of the commanders you were attached to didn't really know what to do with recon. So we did a lot of basic grunt stuff, too. Okay. And that's how we tended to get in fights. So that was, that was the thing that was like one of the focuses of Generation Kill was how they really didn't know what to do with the recon. They just put so them in into contact. Uh, yeah. So, so what you were saying is you were the most overqualified basic bitch grunts on the battlefield. Yep, pretty much. For a good <laughs> My first month in, in country, we were holding battle space. <laughs> Welcome to the club, Pete. We meet on Thursdays. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you think um, when you write that you factor in more of the technology or, or more of the environment to make it realistic? I generally start with the environment. And so I, I sort of start with the environment and the tactics. And then if the technology that it gets introduced forces an adjustment in those tactics, then I go with that. And not everybody on the battlefield is necessarily going to be prepared for that adjustment that has to happen either. That's how people lose. Uh, we're seeing this in uh, Ukraine right now with the ubiquitous use of drones to the point where there's almost no way on the front lines to stay unobserved unless you're underground. And yeah. nobody was prepared for this. There are, there's no doctrine, there's no SOP. So they're kind of making it up as they go along. Well, the Russians Which, have a doctrine for it. It's called our troops are expendable. 
And we, we hope to, we hope to put that's more, been, that's more, been Russian doctrine that's for true. time before. And, and they hope to put more warm bodies out there than the Ukrainians have drones. Yeah. <laughs> so the drones or have been a thing the since the Don, the initial invasion of Donbass was it 2014 ish. Uh, drones were used to take down a Russian fighter. It got in the engine and it took it down. And drones have only gotten cheaper and, and easier to acquire. So I, I imagine that's going to play a factor. I read an article recently that the Marines were actually talking about adding to the Marine Rifle Squad a drone operator. Now, I don't know I if that was just task and purpose or anything came of it. but I thought they already well, had the, a drone uh, operator. The Army does. Oh, okay. I, yeah, that's I, I doubt looks. the Marine Corps does on a squad level yet. But they've the, the anti-armor switchblade is something like, a third or less the cost of a javelin with about the same capability so th there's 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 some indicators that there's going to be a lot more a lot more switchblades fielded than regular uh shoulder fired missiles there's also uh, an article that i think jr put up uh just today about the army has a new a microwave weapon that can take out you know, mass waves of drones. And I think that's going to be, I think that's going to be a thing that's, that's going to be like an arms race between oh, drones yeah. and anti-drone weapons. And honestly, this is not like a realistic prediction of future combat, but more something that I enjoy reading that I don't want to see a drone battlefield. So I, yeah. I make sure that when my, stories are set that the the pendulum is swung the other way so that you know ECM makes drone combat impossible because I don't want to see I don't want to write about it and I don't want to read and about that, it either. <laughs> and, and that's something I, I've been I've been seeing a lot of oh the, the drones have irrevocably changed everything but the countermeasures haven't caught up yet. Because there's always a countermeasure to everything. And that, that was yeah. one of those things that we bitched about constantly in Iraq as we kept turtling and adding more and more armor. In the race between armor and firepower, firepower is going to win. So that's one of the things that people – they used to be the popular show, If Pirates Met Knights, that kind of thing that was on the History Channel <laughs> back when they pretended history was something they talked about instead of just aliens and truck drivers. Uh, and one of the things they would do is they really? try to analyze the various weapons. And inevitably what you realize is that – Technology is a yin and a yang. So you make a weapon, I make a defensive counter, and it goes back and forth. So that's one of the things you always have to factor in when you're talking technology. If side A develops widget, whatever, like someone on the other side is working on a way to counter that. Yep. And that yep. It, when they don't factor that in and the other team has the, the super weapon and nobody else can defeat it forever, I, I always get suspicious. At, yeah, because uh, that means whoever, whoever's writing it hasn't studied the history enough to understand how these things work. Yeah, I mean, it's, you like know, it's, saying, war is, the other thing, like Doc was saying, war is a human endeavor. You're, you're never going to just see drones against drones because then you may as well sit down and play chess to solve your differences. No, that, that's better. not how war works. And, you know, and as a... As a is a writing tool, you know, as a and for characters who are savvy uh -oh. and who are aware that their technology has limitations, 
letting the characters in the scenario, you know, enter, you know, battle space where what they thought was an advantage is no longer an advantage is a, you know, is a wonderful thing, you know, to put your characters through and is very entertaining uh, to write, you know, and, and especially to read, you know, giving somebody those challenges, which are, you know, like I say, whatever, whatever way you imagine it based on the technologies that you're that you're bringing to bear against the opponents in the story you know that that's that's a wonderful exercise to to put yourself through that you know it it, it always lends something interesting to a story and for the very reason that it's you know like i say it's it's realistic you know those those are the things that we deal with constantly that's why we have the schoolhouses and the think tanks and and you know, that we do the brain trusts who are trying to you know anticipate the challenges of what the next war is going to be you know so so it's all very yeah, that's one of the things nick and i were talking about in in previous post shows where we just shoot the breeze and, and have a few beverages of adult varieties was how often people forget that you know the the bad guys or the good guys, whoever they show up with the perfect equipment for the perfect scenario where they're going. And I can't think tell how often you know soldiers go into the field with winter gear when it's summer and vice versa. I mean, whole battle strategies were the Battle of the Bulls. They didn't have the right equipment, and look how that affected history of the world. I mean, I did my desert training at Fort Dix, New Jersey, in the winter, wearing summer you know summer weight gear, rolling around in the snow. I mean, crap happens. You know, and and that's more common than not. And so whenever um, everything great, is too perfect, great New Jersey, great New Jersey desert. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we got lucky. We were right next to an Air Force base, so if you could crawl under the wire, you could get to the defac over on the Air Force side and eat good chow. <laughs> the trick was catching, like getting back on the other side because they were patrolling for you. They didn't like the soldiers on their grass. They're like, "Hey, who's this guy?" Bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> but the good news is you could get seconds because running from the MPs got you that extra exercise, so it balanced. Well, yeah, NPs don't run. They got squad cars. No, they don't. So do you guys factor in things like how the weather might affect equipment, or do you stick with the buttoned-up battle suit that neutralizes all those uh, oh, concerns? Air Force, it would be SPs, I think, anyway. SPs, yeah. Um, oh, SF. SF, security forces. Is it SF now? Okay, sorry. Um, you said, what was it? You're asking about the weather, JR? So when you guys write your combat, do you stick them in suits that negate all the weather? Or do you like to go more like Colonial Marine equipment, for instance? We go back to that because it's so basic where, you know, all the stuff that matters to humans on Earth matters to these people regardless of situation. Almost all my uh, troops wear sealed suits. I mean, they're not they're not all powered, but they're sealed against, you know, poisonous gas different atmospheres, you know, so, so none of them actually, there's, there's kind of an insulation against extreme cold heat. Well, the heat is, is worse than the cold because there's not a lot you can do for air conditioning uh, and, you know, rain, stuff like that. It doesn't really get to them except for visibility wise. Damn. Okay. But even if, even what about if you're, I'd say even if you're sealed up in a in armor, it's still gonna cause you problems. That is true. I mean, if you yeah, go extreme the, yeah. cold, go ahead, Doc. 
Oh, no, I was saying one of the Galaxy's Edge books that I wrote uh, for the guys was uh, was specifically, uh, you know, they uh, had a book. Uh, uh, no, I'm fading because it's getting late at night. I, I get up at like four in the morning. So it's like you guys do this stuff at like nine Eastern. It's like, Daddy's sleepy. I'm usually dead by <laughs> Uh, yeah, I got to put uh, bourbon in my coffee to do these things. And uh, one of the popular Galaxy's Edge books was all about, you know, in, in their universe, the Battle of Sidon. And I wrote a later book that was from the special operations perspective about the, the battle for the planet of Sidon, which is a jungle planet. So even though exactly like Rick does, that, that my guys are in you know, sealed armor that gives them all sorts of capabilities. But, you know, from, from myself, from years spent in the jungle, you know, there, there are some things that not even, you know, uh, armor with any amount of augmentation will, will, will save you from. And the jungle is one of those environments, you know, where, where every step you sink, where, you know, you're carrying a hundred pound ruck and, you know, every step up a slope, is two or three steps sliding backwards, you know, uh, you know, where the rains come, you know, at all sorts of unpredictable hours and wipe out your visibility. And it's like I say, you know, those very real environments, you know, the, the, the kind of technologies that, that make our characters, you know, pretty much invulnerable in almost any environment, the jungle is the great equalizer for that. So, so yeah, Jr. I, I I wrote one book where where the weather and the environment played a very very decisive uh, factor in the story and how the characters coped with things. Okay, what what about you, Nick, with your comics? Because you know you you writing in a different medium than than us. Uh yeah. Um, weather always plays a factor, uh, even in my. Uh, the military sci-fi uh, story that I wrote, weather was definitely a factor in that one. And it didn't help that the troops that I was writing about sent to that planet were like, it took them like, over, you know, so the, and they had no intelligence on the enemy's capabilities, strengths, anything like that. They had to develop that once they got on ground. So, and it was a moist planet. So there was a lot of fog, a lot of rainfall, a lot of stuff that affected their equipment. Planet. It was moist. moist. <laughs> you know? Okay. Okay. So there's things like that. Um, but even I in the like comic you need books, a shower you know, the way you say that. Uh. <laughs> you know. But like I like putting weather in there. I like I like giving them disadvantages, you know, because if they're fully prepared, they got the best equipment. And if anyone who's ever done any time in the military knows military grade doesn't mean what you think it means. So like Phantom Hawk, he's, he was raiding old military installations and stuff like that to get his equipment. So it was like battered, beat up. Some of it was on fire at one point and he uses his knowledge to try and put the shit back together. It's funny you know, so, when you're, when you're in the military, everybody in the infantry wants to buy right. the, the high tech, like a uh, high dollar stuff from inside and then people and civilians like hunters and stuff they're all buying like military boots and gear and stuff you gotta laugh at them <laughs> yeah. so uh we we knew you only had a lot of time because you've got deadlines and stuff peter 
Peter, I know you got to bounce in just a second. So two things: one, uh, the good stuff that you think you like when you see combat in mil or science fiction, the bad, and then how people can find you before you bounce. Okay, the good. Um, combat's friggin' exhausting, and uh, it, it hurts even if you're not getting shot. You're, you just a combat environment is just going from one set of pain to another. So if somebody actually gets that across, then they're they're doing a, a decent job. The bad usually I find the bad is when it's like people in this profession don't do that, don't act that way. They don't talk that way, they don't act that way. Um or just tactical stupidity because the plot has to happen. If you've got some kind of highly trained, high speed, low drag operator, and he makes a he does something rookie stupid without an excuse of being falling down tired, just because you need things to go wrong, you probably need to step back and do things. As for where to find me, um, AmericanPretorians.com. All of my stuff is on Amazon. And I'm on uh, Facebook too, and Twitter occasionally. Hey, okay. uh, we're we going to get all those links at, uh, the island together uh, this summer, aren't we? That's right. Yes, the, Gal the, the Galaxy Edge Fan Expo. Okay. Yeah. And when is that? That is July twentieth through twenty third, I think. Which means when this episode airs. Uh, after you celebrate freedom and you celebrate it by buying all of their books because they're all, all war heroes, uh, you should uh, check it out. There's still probably tickets available, and we'll link to that as well. So we appreciate your time, as short though it may be, uh, and now you can go please your your taskmasters. I mean publishers. <laughs> so, uh, they, uh, Rick, you were you were weighing in on the um, the way the scenario, like the, the mission would affect, or I think that's where you were going, but how sometimes the mission affects the tactics and vice versa. If I'm understanding what you were no, starting to say. The technology, are you talking about the technology affecting the tactics? I don't remember. <laughs> well, we're going to pretend that's something smart you were saying, and we're just going to go from there. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we have to pretend. No, I, I feel like, um, I feel like that's one thing we were talking about what separates good military science fiction from bad. And I think one thing that's an easy, um, easy button for a lot of writers is to take battles that have already happened and write them in a, a future military science fiction scenario. But the thing is, I don't think that's a good idea because those battles in general happened because of the way they did because of the technology available because of the tactics that technology put forced you into uh if you have if you have battle suits that can fly and satellites in orbital support you're not going to get into a battle of the bold situation you're not going to be fighting in the alamo it's going to be different mobility is going to be key you're going to be you're going to need uh, communication and um, what's the word? Like observation, 
They can uh, bring in fire. It's 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 not going to be Vietnam. It's not going to be World War Two. It's not going to. And even though I don't see this as much, except recently, like Galaxy's Edge, it's not going to be the Middle East. It's not going to be Iraq or Afghanistan. It's going to be something totally different. And I know that a lot of people who read military science fiction kind of want, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, or Vietnam, or World War II with laser guns. But I, I feel like I want, I want to write something where the battle plays out a different way because it has to. That's just my, out, you know, my, my take on things. Yeah, and if you can't be excited about writing it, why write it? I'm with you. It's like, why do, why do I want to do a rehash of, of like Gettysburg, you know, but with laser guns, you know, yeah. I'm so, excited about that, you know. So some I, of the, some of those tropes happen because things like sometimes battles get stumbled into before units are ready. That's what Gettysburg made it iconic. So you can take some of the underlying themes or the underlying yeah, issues. Sure. And make that work. Like what made Thermopylae famous was wasn't so much the 300 because there were more than just the Spartans there, but it was the idea of using terrain superiority to win the day. And then it shows you what happens when you have a traitor in your midst because suddenly they flank you, right? Like it's you could use those ideas and still apply it, but if you write a uh, word for word, I agree, it'd get boring. I mean, they already have those in the history books, right? You don't need right. to redo it. Now, I I personally I do find that you know not so much the specifics of the battle engagements, but the the specific <clears throat> settings of the political climate that led to there being some kind of conflict. I get a lot of inspiration historically from the politics that led to Definitely, you know, yeah. the, the English Civil War or, you know, or, you know, the, the you know, the, you know, uh, uh, whatever, you know, T.E. Lawrence, you know, in the Arabian Peninsula or, you know, whatever, you know, the, the Silu Scouts in Rhodesia, you know, the, the political climate and what led to there being a conflict, I think, is is one of those perpetual human eternals that I think is excellent for research and inspiration. Well, that's a that's a that's a big thing, John. That most people, most writers in military science fiction, don't spend enough time on. In my opinion is the causes of the why people are fighting the war, because there's not a lot of rational reasons to fight an interstellar war. If you're if you're writing military science fiction in the future, rationally, resources is not a reason. For, in general, unless there's some hand wavium, unobtainium thing like an avatar, you can get all the resources you need from places that nobody's going to fight you for them. It, you know, the only resources you can't get from there may be something biological. And even then it might be easier to grow it in a, in a lab in an orbit than to, to fight somebody for it. So coming up with a logical reason for there to be a, a space war is a difficult one. So speaking of resources, one of the things people never factor in is the the role the resources would take. So depending on when you are in the conflict, unless you've got like replicator technology a la Stargate, like at a certain point in time, you know, you get a war going on long enough, you're going to be running out of bodies and you're going to be running out of equipment because running a war machine takes a lot. And at a certain point in time, that's going to be like 
you know, it takes how long for a human to be, you know, born, raised, like you start factoring all that in and you add a war that's been going on at a certain point in time, you know, recruiting, you're, you're not going to get the best of the best because you can get whatever you can. Well, I think uh, one of the things that we don't also don't take enough into account is how few ships there actually may be. And in, in, if you're, if you're doing anything that's like away from the earth, uh, people tend to have these huge fleets where everything blows up and there's still ships coming, but starships would be freaking expensive to build. You know, and if you've got a huge warship, that's going to take a significant portion of the gross solar product. I don't know what the whole solar system. And uh, you're not going to be able to have like 100 of those things blown up and just keep coming back. After, after like eight or nine or 10, you may be at a point where you have no choice but to try to make peace because you ain't got no more ships. And if you look at how many bodies it takes to crew those large ships, I mean, I unless you're using, I mean, there's there's already eight billion people on Earth, and if, if you can build yeah, starships, but, you probably have like a hundred billion people in a system or something like that. A war goes on long enough with enough casualties, you're going to start having trouble getting people that meet the requirements. And depending on what your technology is, maybe not everyone can pass the test for, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. The movie Halo uh, about the assault on Reach where you, um, they had an issue where the, the main character who is the, uh, becomes the captain later of, of a significant ship. He, he had an allergy to the medicine they use for cryofreeze to do the interstellar transport. That stuff is going to happen. And so you've got to factor that in too. And so once you start weighing that kind of stuff in, you're going to find not everybody's qualified to, to serve. Well, in, like in, physically the, in Top Trooper series, the problem isn't not everybody's qualified, but they don't have a draft for the most part. So getting people, it's, it's kind of a very war on terror type of setting because most of the people on earth are only half aware there's a war going on. And, you know, they, they're all, Every, everybody can be on the dole with free food and a free place to live and getting anybody to actually fight a war is really difficult. So there was that expression in the porta potties in Iraq, where if you want to know what a soldier thinks, find out where they take a shit and read what they write on the walls. It's eternal from the <laughs> Romans at Hadrian's wall to now. And it was America's not at war. America's at the mall. The U S army is at war. And that, that's yeah. pretty timeless. I thought, the Romans were mostly, I thought the Romans were mostly drawing dick pics. Well, they were, but you know, I gotta appreciate infantry the have been drawing dick pics <laughs> for the longest time. I was over at the uh, there's a um, a castle over there in uh, St. Augustine, Florida. And oh yeah, the Castillo de San Marcos. Yeah, you go in there and you look where the barracks is. Even though it's kind of like faded out, there's there's chingos of dick pics or dick drawings on the wall. You know, so I'm like, oh man, infantry's infantry, no matter what time they're from. So add that love, to your book. More dick place, pics, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> More dick drawings. I love the Castillo uh, de San Marcos. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. Well, every time I'm there, I, I go and check it out, even though it's, it don't change. I just I like walking so, around there. So, John, when you were writing uh, your your speckle special operators <laughs> in the Galaxy's Edge universe, did you address the things like the politics and the recruiting issues and all of that? Because you're writing about elite forces and not everybody can make the cut. I mean, you see that at, at SF Selection. Yeah, uh, it's very interesting writing in, you know, uh, the Legionnaire universe, you know, one, you know, and writing in somebody else's universe is always, you know, you got to play by their rules or you can't play, you know. So one of like Jason Onspa's things was is that the 
the Legion's covert action force is called Dark Ops, and it's the Legion is such a elite organization that any Legionnaire could be selected for Dark Ops, and you know, and I took that as okay. That's the that's the setting of of what you've created, but there still has to be, you know, there's still proclivities and and preferences and and you know suitability and things like that. And that's how I kind of work that into the stories to to describe who really was like in dark ops versus who wasn't. Um, what was the question? Oh, no, you answered it. You answered it. <laughs> And I think you answered the future questions we we're about to have. So, so the last question would be: since uh, Nick and, and Doc, you guys played with the special squirrels, how do you factor in the need? Because because special operators are called that for a reason. Like generally speaking, they're well-oiled machines, but that can be boring to read. So, how do you balance the "I'm a well-oiled machine" with giving personality to characters that are minor, might not be hidden behind lots of armor, you might not see their faces. And like I said, you want to give them personality, but how oh, do you balance that? For me, you know, right, writing in, like I say, in somebody else's universe, you know, it made me extremely unpopular with a great number of the fans because, you know, the conflicts that I set up with people were very much the kind of conflicts of, you know, dudes who I was on teams with, you know, it's like you have that pull to you know be the tip of the spear but at the same time you have that same competing pull about the life that you might be missing that could be if you if you you know weren't behind the gun you know and i mean everybody you know in the military basically wages that kind of battle you know i mean you know everybody in in our modern era are volunteers into the military but but everybody who I ever served with, basically, you know, even if you're committed to being a careerist and doing 20 years, there's still some part of you that says, what would my life be like if I wasn't doing this? You know, and every periodically looking at, you know, yeah, I know I've got 12 years in, but I'm still young enough to do something else, you know, Am I making a mistake by driving on? I see who I'm going to be in, you know, at 20 years, I'm going to be that guy there. Do I want to be that guy or do I want to take a different path? So, you know, I introduced uh, that as, you know, a conflict, a very realistic conflict that most of us dealt with ourselves in our service and certainly the other people around us dealt with. And I caught a lot of flack and a lot of just general hate you know, for guys who, who primarily want to read like, you know, you know, lightsaber, triple backflips, you know, one guy kills 20 bad guys kind of scenarios. Uh, you know, I mean, I found my audience or my audience found me and won them over and, and my series became pretty popular within GE, but it was completely unlike all of the other books within within canon. You, you are know. one of the few in military science fiction who takes into account, like, when a body is dead. You don't just leave the guy in all of his equipment. You police that shit up. 
And so often it's just like when I when I see it on the TV or you read about it and I'm like, no, 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 you grab his rifle. You don't leave that for the bad guys. Nope. And so that's one of the things you see that I think you did a pretty good job. My favorite, though, was because we talked about this when we interviewed you when the first Docker uh dark, dark operator came out was uh the people that were like do you even uh, operate bro like they were questioning your pedigree and i just <laughs> had to laugh because it, it always amuses me so well part part of that i i i get into which is you know part of, i just finished another dark operator and and uh you know to spoil it you know it's it's the last main series lane last main book in that in the dark operator series and you know and i and uh you know i talk about those things it's like when it gets to like writing special operations the problem with the average guy writing about some kind of you know super secret tier one special operations group is they don't have a fucking idea what special operations is you know it's not you know guys who are bigger and stronger or better look i mean it's like guys guys you know you served with in 25th you served with in the 101 stuff like that there were guys on average fire team who were as studly a bunch of dudes as there is anywhere in a tier in any tier one selected unit right there's dudes who are just super studs that's all there is to it right most Special of them were skinny operation. little bastards yeah, yeah. Yes. very not yeah, assuming exactly. you know right exactly and that's the whole uh, another huge point about it too is it's ostensibly some of those guys there's nothing about them until you see them perform well except for navy seals because apparently they have forever to pump iron who is capable <laughs> of, of that sort of like superhuman performance you know except but, for navy seals doc because apparently they have a lot of time to pump iron they're the ones I've seen mostly that are Jack. Yeah. Or they yeah. look like so, ostriches. But, but the, same, the, the point being that also, you know, special operations, most people that they have no idea what constitutes a special operation, you know, of which there's a huge, 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 huge spectrum of, of those missions and the skills that it takes to, to pull those missions off correctly. And most of them, you know, uh, are done with support by by non-special operations units and a handful of them are done with no support and are done, you know, as lone operators, individual missions and things like that. So there's a really big wide spectrum. So, you know, it's like I say, for my small bailiwick of, of expertise, you know, small unit tactics and special operations are things that I you know, I know very well, but you know, my, my point about that is, is like, I'm the same thing when I have to write about large unit engagements, you know, that involve, you know, indirect fire, uh, uh, you know, air support and things like that. You know what, you know, I have to research, I have to pick up the phone and call, you know, somebody in the artillery branch. I got to pick up the phone and call a buddy who is a fact. I got to pick up the phone. You know, I mean, I have to do my research from the subject matter experts to make sure that I'm not committing huge gross errors, even though like I'm supposedly like a, you know, an expert in, in you know, military operations. Yeah. And small unit tactics and special operations, you know, I can hold my own on other things. I, I still have to do my research. I still have to ask those 
who know, you know, just because it, 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 if for nothing else, I don't want to alienate the guy who knows better, who's reading yeah. the product. You know, he's invested in my product. You know, I mean, I'm a big tent guy. I want to entertain everybody, but it's like, I especially do not want to alienate the guy who knows better because I don't want him to be in the same situation like I've found myself in as the reader for most of my life saying, yep, that was a pretty good book. It's just a damn shame that guy didn't ask somebody who knows because with just that much effort and a little tweaking, he could have turned that story into something that didn't make me and all my buddies slap our foreheads with how freaking stupid he was. But you know he the, didn't you, the effort. You know where I've, I've read more, more of that, even than military science fiction or military like thrillers? It's funny, but right after the war on terror started from the so-called nonfiction books that a lot of people were churning out about the war, you could tell just by reading someone, this guy was never over there, never talked to anybody who was over there, doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Yeah, it's like it's, so, like it's like crime books and detective books and you know all those kind of other genres where it's like wow they may be really popular but it's like the author did not talk to anybody who actually did that job or knew anything. They wrote a very entertaining story, but it's like to the dudes who know better, you know, they alienated them because you know everything about it is unrealistic. So, you know, I don't I don't want to make anything so pedantic and realistic that it's like that it's a slog to get through you know uh but at the same it, by the same token uh, you know it's like i say for the guy who knows better i want him to be entertained as much as anybody okay so i know rick and i tend to write the everyman but when it comes to writing the the special tier one operator nick do, do you have anything to add when you're writing with comics or do you think doc pretty much summed it up for you as well oh the I love having Doc on because every thought I've ever had or question that you would ask me, Doc's answered it like 15 minutes ago. So it saves me a lot of talking. Um, but yeah, he's right on Mark. Um, I, I, <coughs> really um, I have the, I had the pleasure in my military career, not only being a spicy grunt and serving the special operations community. Um, but when I crossed over and got stupid and got, and became an officer, I got all the way up to like battalion staff. So I got, I got a lot of knowledge there of, the battalion level and sometimes even brigade levels. Battalion staff always seemed like one of the hellish, most hellish jobs that I've never would have wanted. <laughs> oh, it was, it was so bad. I was brewing coffee and instead of water, I put Red Bull in there. You know, I could, I there's could a reason that podcast is called sounds. There's a reason that podcast is called the angry staff officer, not the content <laughs> staff officer, the angry staff officer. All right. Well, we can go on on this. Most bitter officers I ever ran into were majors and battalion staff. Bitter, I believe it. But so we could go on this topic forever. And if you've got anything you want us to address, dear listener, dear viewer, put it in the comments and we, we can have these guests back. I do have their uh, their messenger handle so I can get them again if we need to. Uh, with that being said, we didn't interrupt with a commercial because uh, Peter's time was limited. So I'm going to list a book by each one of these authors as the sponsor. And you can check them out in the show notes. With that being said, Rick, can you tell listeners and viewers how they can find you on the wild, wild interwebs? If you're on Facebook, I'm at uh, facebook.com backslash duty on our planet, which is the science fiction worlds of Rick Partlow. I also have uh, 
a author blog, rickpartlove.com. But the best place to find my books is to just search for my name on Amazon. I'm basically the only one by that name. So. Okay. And what about you, Doc? How can listeners and viewers find your books? Uh, likewise, the beautiful world we live in, you go on Amazon and type in <laughs> Doc Spears and you'll get about nine or 10 titles up there and on Audible. I would push people uh, to read Warlord. Uh, it's a uh, good book. Cock up. Thank, very kind. Uh, to that's uh, That series is continuing on and there'll be a new dark operator six it's you know in the hands of the publishers right now so you know audible production being what it is and things i'm sure by the end of summer or early fall that'll be out okay and uh nick you just added something special today so can you tell us uh about your i i did i added buy me a coffee so if you want to support, you can support him by the panel or the page uh, for his comics to keep him churning them out quicker. Because I understand his colorist and all the subspecialties aren't free. They don't want to work for his smiles. I don't know what that's about. Oh, no. Um, I got like, I drink a lot of coffee and I dip. So they don't want to see my smile. But I added commissions to my buy me a coffee. So you can check that out too. All right, outstanding. And you can find us, dear listener. Oops, I should have this up, but I was so distracted by that smile. All right, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com. Not to get it weird or anything, twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. If you ever want to comment on the episodes, that's an easy way place to go to do that. Um, or you can comment uh, on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tag blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, where for as little as 99 cents a month, you could keep uh, the show running. They're not free to produce, but so we appreciate every penny. Uh, the sleepiness of Doc is contagious because I've been getting up early lately, too, to fit in the exercising. But uh the, the goal is, though, by this time next year, so April 2024, it says I will hit my army weight. I could fit my uniform again uh, if I keep up on this trajectory. I don't know what I'd do with it. They don't, like, the Class A's are just not a thing anymore, but I could. So that's the goal. I don't know what you guys are talking about being sleepy. It's still light outside here. I, 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 that's like so bizarre. It's like I was, I was like actually, like I already got, I got my, like, warm fuzzies on for bed. And, you know, I, I'm moving that way and I go, Oh no, I told JR that I would like to join a podcast tonight. We're going to start doing some of these chats a little bit earlier now that uh, uh, Nick's on day schedule. But you can also yeah. support the show over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author JR Henley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author JR Hanley. Be sure to put it in the show notes, in the show notes, in the notes that it's for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated and Nick's uh, jaws filled with all the dips. You should quit, though. That's bad for you. But uh, we'll do the thing. <laughs> what, do you so, want to live uh, forever? No, you know, I, I mean, I made lots of stupid decisions because <laughs> I said, what's the worst they could do? Bend my dog tags and send me to Iraq? But uh, yeah, it's like a, it's like a buddy of mine said a long time. It's like, if I can't drink, have a smoke once in a while, it's like, life hasn't been that damn good. <laughs> <laughs> I think you yes, have sir. good friends, Doc. 
<laughs> All right. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Jay, uh, Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. I'm used – I'm reading it like, like she was reading it because that's who it's written for. I'm yeah. uh, J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. And I promise before the next one, Nick and I will caffeinate so we will be like as energetic as ever. Red Bull in the coffee, people. We will make it happen. All right. Thank you for coming, Rick. Thank you for coming, Doc. We appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. All, Thank all you, man. All right.